0: Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 170. It's another special Ukraine war report. And I'm your host, Paul Rykov. The war in Ukraine... Is in its third month. And more than ever, this is a time to stay vigilant. That's the sounds of relentless shelling happening right now at the Azovstal plant in Mariupol, Ukraine. Witnesses are calling it living hell. There are reports that the massive steel complex has been bombarded 34 times in just the last 24 hours. Russian troops continue to attempt to storm the plant. 100 Ukrainian civilians, maybe more, more than a thousand Ukrainian soldiers, and hundreds of wounded remain trapped, fighting to their death inside the Azovstal plant in Mariupol right now. The plant and the city were supposed to fall weeks ago. But like so many other moments in this war, Ukraine has defied the predictions. The Azovstal plant has become the latest symbol of Ukrainian strength, defiance, and toughness. This is their Alamo. And they will fight to the last man or woman to defend it, like they have for every other inch of their land in the last three months of this war. Easy is over. It's long since over. This is the long haul now. The artillery and trench battles in the east of Ukraine are grinding into what could devolve into a stalemate that could last months, even years. This is where the war in Ukraine could turn into an even more brutal and horrifying grinder. You'll want to turn away. You'll feel a need to turn away. And Putin wants you to turn away. But you can't. Ukraine is the fight of our time. A fight for all times. And Memorial Day, summer break in America... Roe versus Wade, the NBA playoffs, the midterm elections, whatever Elon Musk does, none of that is a good enough excuse to turn away from the fight of our time, the fight for all time. It's not just the people of Ukraine who have to stay focused. It's not just our leaders in Congress and our president that have to stay focused. Every single independent American who loves freedom must stay focused. We must stay vigilant because the war of our time rages on nothing is settled nothing is a given and the news is tough the flood of death is constant but the stakes remain exceptionally high and are getting higher by the day
1: Fire. yeah. you high. know them stakes is high
0: Easy is over. And apathy is Putin's best ally right now. He wants you to be tired of the war news, tired of the war crimes, tired of the shelling, tired of the videos of Ukrainians blowing up Russian tanks. He wants you to change the channel. He's waiting on it. He's counting on it. And you can't give it to him. We can't give it to him. The Ukrainians have no choice but to fight. And they'll be doing it day or night, with or without us. But the U.S. has finally put the pedal down. First Lady Jill Biden visited Ukraine on Mother's Day as a powerful show of support. And President Biden finally signed a lend lease agreement this week to maximize the flow of American weapons and support into Ukraine. But we need to continue to give anything we can to the heroic people of Ukraine until this is done. Our political support, our financial support, our emotional support, and most of all, our attention. Attention must be paid. And on this show, I'll do my best to make it easy for you. In another episode now, with another important, inspiring, and iconic leader. A guest who's changing the past, present, and future of not only Ukraine, but also of America, another leader who knows both worlds, the U.S. and Ukraine. He's a man who was raised in Florida, but spent the last eight years of his life living in Ukraine. And he spent the last three months on the front lines of the war, helping us all stay connected, stay attentive, and stay vigilant. He's an American Special Forces veteran, a combat journalist, the husband of a Ukrainian, Who is telling the story of this war through his life in it? When Ukraine needed him, he answered the call to stand by me. He's American veteran, author, and journalist, Nolan Peterson. Nolan's a former United States Air Force Special Operations pilot and a veteran of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He's an acclaimed war correspondent and globetrotting travel writer whose adventures have taken him to all seven continents. And with his wife, Lilia, by his side, Peterson's traveled between Washington and Kiev and worked as a foreign correspondent around the world for the Daily Signal, UPI, and the National Security Forum. And now he's the senior editor for Coffee or Die magazine. More on what that is coming up. But Nolan's a graduate of the Air Force Academy with a degree in political science. He did an internship at NATO headquarters in Brussels. He has an M.S. in journalism from Northwestern, a master's from Middlebury, and a diploma for French language from the Sorbonne. And he's going to break down the latest. He's going to tell us what's happening right now inside Ukraine in the skies with the pilots, among families that are ripped apart, inside Mariupol, behind the lines with the units of foreign fighters, and into the future. And he's going to help us all understand now how to stand by Ukraine. I want to send a special thank you to all our Independent Americans Patreon members. You continue to power this show and stand by us. And if you're not yet a member, please stand by this show and join us. You keep this kind of content coming. And you can find out more at Patreon or at independentamericans.us. It's a way you can stand by this show and help us stand by the people of Ukraine. Because the Ukrainian people need us all to stand by them now. And they are not afraid. And people have continued to stand by Ukraine from around the world. People like Bono and The Edge from U2. At the invitation of President Zelensky, Bono and The Edge bravely went into Ukraine and played a live set inside a Kiev subway that's now being used as a bomb shelter. And they sang this classic with a Ukrainian soldier who's also a singer named Taras Topolya from the Ukrainian group Antitilia. In addition to that important concert, Bono also visited Bucha, the town outside Kiev, where hundreds of bodies have been found after Russian troops withdrew last month, the town that's become a war crime site. And U2 and Bono did what they do best. They stood by the good guys, and they told their stories, and stood on the side of righteousness, and have inspired millions, and they've kept the attention and focus on the war in Ukraine. Bono, The Edge, you 2 they have stood up now with Ukraine. Just like so many others, including Nolan Peterson. And together, especially now, it's time for us all to stand by Ukraine. It's just like the classic Benny King song says When the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see. No, I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand. Stand by me. The people of Ukraine won't be afraid. And we must stand by them. That's what they need. And that's what this moment in history continues. To require. Welcome to another Ukraine war report. Welcome to another reason to stay vigilant. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 170. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. May is here and we are continuing our focus on all things Ukraine. It is the story of our time. It is the story of our moment. And we're going to continue to bring you uh, impactful, important leaders from inside and around uh, the war. And I am very, very uh, thankful, humbled and inspired to have joining us now on Independent Americans the great and powerful Nolan Peterson joins us on independent Americans. Welcome to the show. Nolan.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, um, you've got a really interesting past, man. You, you, you know, you've been an author, you've been U S special forces. Um, and, and now you're in Ukraine. I want to start by asking you the question I ask uh, everybody,
2: where are you and how are you, Nolan? (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm hanging in there doing much better now that, uh, the Ukrainian army has kicked the Russians out of uh, Kyiv's perimeter. Uh, so currently I am in Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, where I've lived for, for eight years. And yeah, I think, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a moment of contradiction, I think, here in Kyiv, because we are very grateful and, you know, just exuberant in a way that the threat to our city of a, a sack, an actual ground invasion of this capital city of more than three million people has passed. However, we know we still have missile threats. We still have daily air raid alerts. Uh, so the threat of you know, random death from the air still exists. And also there are you know, very heavy battles still going on in the south and the east, uh, most particularly in Mariupol. So you know, it's a moment to both rejoice for the fact that you know, there aren't Russian soldiers in the streets hunting down, <laughs> uh, mm. like me, who speak out against what Russia is doing. Um, But also a moment to take pause and I think, uh, you know, sort of acknowledge the fact that this incredibly savage and destructive war, uh, we may only be at the end of the beginning at this point, and it may not end anytime soon.
0: Hmm. I'm I'm glad you're, you're framing up with that perspective, because one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Nolan, is because I think America is already in some ways, sadly, unfortunately, starting to change the channel a little bit. They get mm-hmm. exhausted by conflict. We saw that in Afghanistan. Now we've got Roe v. Wade. Uh, the, ele- the midterm elections are coming up. But you you grew up in Florida. You were in the Air Force. Can you take us back? How did you end up in Ukraine first? And when did you first end up in Ukraine? I know you've been around the world reporting and writing. But how did you
2: end up connected you, uh, to, to Ukraine? And, and when did that happen? Yeah, so when I was in the Air Force as a pilot in Air Force Special Operations I think I experienced something that many uh, people in the military, particularly who served in Iraq and Afghanistan and other com- combat zones around the world, you know you feel there's this feeling when you came home that the civilian population in America were very sort of quarantined, to use a, a term of our time, mm-hmm. uh, from the realities of of the things that were going on around the world, you know, the dark forces that. We are sort of holding back from our country, sort of unknowingly, to the majority of the American population. So, you know, when I would come home from my deployments, and particularly when my brother, my younger brother Drew, was in the Air Force and he was deployed as well to Afghanistan several times, it was just this sense like you just almost want to grab people and be like, don't you understand what's going on in the world? Don't you get it? Like, don't you understand that it's important for us to push back against, you know, these forces of evil in the world that still exist? And so, I think when I had the opportunity to leave the Air Force, you know, I was at the time unmarried, no mortgage. So when I had the chance, I jumped at it. Um, but I, I, you know, I I thought that it was important, and it was another way of basically serving my country to become a journalist and to come back and to tell those stories, to come back with the truth, uh, because I think it's it's a responsibility for every citizen in a democracy in a democracy to understand what's going on in the world, because we are not immune. Uh, from from wars in foreign lands, and I think you know the last several decades have sh- certainly shown us that. So anyway, I decided to become a journalist, and like many aspiring war correspondents, you know I kind of just plowed through my savings, freelanced in Afghanistan, and uh, and you know I was looking for sort of a story that I really uh, gravitated toward emotionally. And uh, when, you know, in 2014 was a very busy war, or a busy year as far as uh, global conflicts are concerned. That was a year at ISIS rampaging across the Middle East. You had the war in Israel. And also that was the year that the war in eastern Ukraine began. I had a friend who I flew with actually in Afghanistan, working at the uh, at the embassy here in Kiev at the time. And he said, man, come over. You know, there's a conventional war going on that that is not getting the amount of attention it needs so i came over here thinking i'd be here for a couple weeks and you know lo and behold i witnessed a tank battle in mariupol that summer and i remember sitting there literally on a hilltop you know like a scene from that movie fury watching tanks shoot each other just thinking Mm. like how is this not a front page story in every newspaper in the world and it was getting attention but it just it just felt like the the um the stakes were so incredibly high. And even then I had this sense that this war was just like this, this pile of tinder waiting to be ignited that could become a much bigger conflict. One that, you know, the United States and our NATO allies would not be able to ignore once it escalated into a much bigger war one day. So anyway, I did made the decision to stay here in Ukraine. Um, you know, over the years I've been here for eight years now, I, you know, often flirted with the idea of going back to the United States or whatever, but I always felt suspected, I should say, that this war uh, was going to become a much bigger disaster. And unfortunately, that's what happened. I also have to say, I married a Ukrainian woman. Half my family is now Ukrainian. My friend, many of my friends are Ukrainian. So there's also an an emotional connection to this country that I think um, I felt. But, you know, within your audience, many American veterans or active duty personnel You know, I've seen a lot of our best values reflected in the Ukrainian people. Mm. And I always felt like I owed it to them to be here and tell their story because they're fighting for the things that we fought for. I was 19 years old on 9-11. And I remember how mad I was to see my country attacked and to feel like our way of life and the things we value were being, you know, being targeted and, you know, being th- not threatened per se. I don't think our country is ever existentially threatened by Al Qaeda. But those things you know, were being attacked. And so I think here in Ukraine, you see that same passion to defend their way of life and a better future for, for their country. And it's a story that really, you know, emotionally resonated with me. And I, you know, over these past few months of full scale warfare now, now I'm both very saddened to see what's happened to this country, but also in a way, I mean, if there's one you know, good things come out of this, I guess. It's like this story about Ukraine is now being more widely told. And I think bravery of the Ukrainian people, not just the soldiers, but the civilians as well, and their commitment to the things we value, democracy, equal rights, liberty, freedom, you know, all these things that we cherish. We see that now. We see what they hold dear. And so I think that this has been a moment, you know, for Ukraine to be in the spotlight. And so I guess, you know, like I said, there's one positive outlook or a positive outcome of this conflict it's been that
0: mm. well you're you're bravely shining that spotlight and and that's why i think your reporting and your twitter feed has been in, indispensable adrian fronenberger and i spoke about your work in in the last episode when i talked to to he and his wife, Arena, and they told their heroic story. But I think it's also interesting, Nolan, that you're doing it from an unconventional perspective. Your background is unconventional, your voice is very powerful, especially your ability to communicate these two worlds and to interpret. What this means for Ukraine, what it means for the world, and what it means for America. I've said before. I think right now the Ukrainians are embodying American values better than Americans are in many ways, right? And it's a, it's a mirror yeah. for us to, to 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 think about what we really stand for and what we would really do. But I want to I want to explore the way you're doing it. You're not over there for NBC News or for the AP. You're, you know, you're the, the senior editor for Coffee or Die magazine, um, which is, you know, which is going to be new to some folks. So can you explain what is Coffee or Die magazine and um, how is your perspective? Um, how has that enabled you to have a different perspective than maybe conventional uh, journalists or traditional mainstream journalists who may be over there or, or may not even be over there? They, they may be sitting behind a desk while you're out in the field reporting.
2: All right. So Black, uh, so Coffee or Die magazine is the the news site of Black Rifle Coffee Company. And it's a, you know, I guess a couple of years ago, you could call it a startup news site, but I think we're, we're well on our way now. I've done some, our collective team has done some incredible work. Uh, we both, we have both veterans who have become journalists as well as civilians. So we bring both perspectives. Um, but yeah, you know, I think we we value Stories uh, that matter to to our audience, particularly focusing on people who have served in the military, first responders, or you know people who are in the military. And so there's a certain angle that we that we um, we shoot for with our work. Um, But I think you know as as veterans or people who have military backgrounds, you know you do see war uh, in a different way. But you also you know look for stories that might otherwise be overlooked by the main so-called mainstream media I know it's kind of a cliche term but you know it is somewhat true and i think the the most obvious example of that is the fact that i've been here for a long time right i think that you know this winter when russia started massing troops on the border you know this became just a you know every journalist on planet earth came to kiev in particular but ukraine more generally to cover this monumental story and that and for good reason because it is the story are the biggest story of our time um but the thing is there's been a war going on for here for eight years right? right two of the largest land armies in europe have been shooting at each other since 2014. where were all these journalists all that time and there have been other very excellent journalists who've been here during these years but by and large the focus of the mainstream media has not been on Ukraine during all these years of warfare. They've dipped their toes in it, or they'll have a correspondent based in Moscow coming here from time to time, hiring a fixer and getting a story and then leaving. So I think that, you know, one, I think the greatest advantage of working for sort of a non-traditional media outlet is that they saw value in having a full-time war correspondent in Ukraine, even when this was not the hottest, you know, story in the world. And so I've been able to, to be here uh, to see the evolution of this country, both its society and its military. And I think that, you know, how that shapes my coverage is that I understand that that incredible moment of resistance that we saw beginning on February 24th in Ukraine, it didn't happen in a vacuum. You know, the last eight years have been prologue to that. And everything that's happened these past year, eight years kind of built up this incredible grit and resilience in Ukrainian society, where you had civilians on day one, grabbing Kalashnikovs and heading out for the front lines. Civilians, you know, organizing clothing and supplies for the soldiers and for refugees. And just this incredible moment of national unity that I think caught a lot of, you know, just civilians around the world, you know, obvious media consumers, but also I'd even think it caught our government off guard too. They predicted Kyiv would fall within a matter of days and it didn't happen. So, long story short, I think there's a lot of value uh to being able to invest a journalist in a story for a long time so that when something like this full-scale full-scale war happens, you have that context and that background to report on it in, in sort of a, a less superficial way.
0: And and it and it seems like you have room to run, right? Like, you know, Black Rifle Coffee is is not going to be what people automatically, especially folks outside the community, assume will be funding investigative journalism, fund, or supporting uh, conflict journalism. But this is a whole whole new media dynamic. And, you know, the Pulitzer's just happened this week. So there's nothing stopping, you know, you from getting a Pulitzer writing for Coffee or Die any more than if right. you work at, at NPR or somewhere else. So the rules, I think, have been broken. And the way the communication landscape around Ukraine has evolved, I think, is also really a next generation of warfare, right? It's not just kinetic warfare, it's cyber, it's the threat of nukes, but also the entire communication framework is very different. And I think the Ukraines have been underappreciated for their mastery of communication. And and just an example, they control the the information flow from the front lines pretty well, right? There there aren't investigative reporters roaming around with scandals about the Ukrainian military or anything else that sometimes you see in a a, a conflict of this scale and scope. Can you talk about from from how you've reported, Nolan, um, how are you reporting? Like you're getting out there, you have these local contacts, you speak the language, you have a family um, how is how you report different from somebody who might do a pop-up for national TV uh, or beam in a, a two-minute report? What has it been looking like for you for the last three months as you've been out there? And can you tell us, what do you think are the stories or story that that America needs to know most right now? You know, Mariupol is under siege. Um, you know, the steel factory may may collapse while we're recording this. Um, what has your reporting revealed that you think most americans still don't understand or appreciate
2: so i think you know specifically talking about my reporting i think you know <laughs> one thing that you know just not to tell myself too much here but i think you know because i've been here for so long and like you said i speak the language and i'm very well connected with both soldiers and civilians here i don't need a fixer you know, I, I am my own fixer in a way. And so I'm not reliant on a local producer or a local journalist to kind of guide me toward what stories are available. I'm able to enterprise my own stories based on my own connections. Um, and, you know, if you want to talk about like getting access to, to frontline units or, you know, very unique groups, both volunteers, soldiers, whatever, you know, a lot of that comes down to trust. And I'm not just some random person off the street. Like a lot of times, these are people I've known for years. I've previously been on the front lines with them. And so they you know, both give me access, but then also understand that I know the rules of the road as far as not reporting on something that would violate operational security so that put them at risk, right? Like right. not photographing right. a power line or something that's gonna show the Russians where these, these soldiers are. I interviewed a Ukrainian MiG-29 pilot and, you know, we had a two-hour discussion of which about 5% I could actually report on because once we got going and we started talking about, you know, my background as a Air Force pilot and his, you know, he really started to, to open up and tell me things that will make a great book one day, but unfortunately I can't report on now. So I think that, you know, having been here for so long, it, it allows me to find stories that the rest of the journalism heard maybe isn't going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, because they all sort of rely on the same kind of group of ideas, you know, for their stories, Mm -hmm. I can find everybody goes left. I can kind of go right and find something unique. Uh, but also, you know, I think that, you know, once I'm out there in the field, my level of access is pretty high just because I have the trust and the faith of, of the soldiers and the civilians who are in harm's way. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, those are sort of my advantages, for being here, but also, you know, there's so many very emotional human stories too. And a lot of these, you know, if you go out to a frontline unit, like these, most of these soldiers weren't soldiers two months ago, they were civilians. And to know, you know, where they were, a lot of them were veterans of the war in the Donbass, whom I know who struggled with post-traumatic stress for years. And now suddenly they're back in the thick of things. So I think there's a whole kind of many layers of context that, uh, somebody like me and there are other journalists who have been here for a long time, but we're able to bring to the story uh, because we haven't just showed up, you know, sort of once things got hot as far as can I pull on one
0: thread there? Because I think we've got you here as a, you know, United States Air Force pilot. Um, You talked about the MiG-29 pilot that you interviewed. Can we focus in on that for a second and maybe pull out a bit? Because I feel like the air component of this war has been kind of seen in awe and in and myth maybe even now uh another one of those things that most um, you know, talking heads predicted that, you know, the Russians were going to get um, air superiority immediately and they were going to dominate because of that. You know, we, we've we kind of s- s- slid past some of these groupthink ideas that were in the early stage of the war. And that was one of them. Can you talk about that part of your reporting? What did you learn from talking about that pilot? And as a pilot yourself, what part of that story do you think folks need to
2: understand back home in the States? That platforms are not, you know, God, right? <laughs> that the human element, even in a domain of warfare which is so connected to technology as air combat, the talent, the creativity, and the guts of the human beings who are in combat still really matters. Hmm. And so I think the air war here is an incredible example of the fact that, you know, in this age of high tech warfare, you know, the Russian pilots are clearly not as as uh, talented as their Ukrainian adversaries. The Ukrainian pilots, several of whom I've talked to, said that the, the Russians have struggled to fly in inclement weather. Right. That they got very used to flying in a very, you know, a very low threat environment in Syria. So when the war started here, they thought they were just going to like have at it, tread on in here, own the airspace on day one but the ukrainians ground based air defenses were much more resilient and much more effective probably with some us intelligence help along the way yeah. um, uh, but also the pilots proved that you know they were going to keep flying and i think that that really you know without getting into any details that would compromise them i think it comes down to a lot of creativity you know the ability to relocate to different airfields to operate with degraded equipment and technology and all these things uh, played into the Ukrainians favor, uh, their ability to MacGyver solutions, (laughs) using low tech solutions to kind of overcome their weaknesses when it comes to the Russians and their ability to take enormous risks. And I think that, you know, all that depends on incredible training. Like if you're gonna take huge risks, it doesn't count for anything if you don't have the skills to back it up, right? right? And all your creativity doesn't count for anything if you don't have the skills to back it up. So I think that, you know, The air war here certainly is a lesson that I hope that our military is is taking notes on is, you know, in the sense that, you know, there is a certain point, I believe, in modern warfare where technology is going to kind of cancel itself out. And our pilots, if we lose GPS, if we lose all these Gucci tools we've gotten used to, can we still eyeball lobbing a bomb onto a target like in World War II? Can we still you know fly v of r can we fly at night without using instruments you know like yeah, or GPS, yeah, yeah like yeah. all these things that that maybe you know we sort of lost the, those skill sets a little bit as we become dependent mm-hmm. on technology and i think the ukrainians have shown uh that being able to to work around those deficits pays dividends in a high-end war like this
0: yeah i think that's that's a really important point Nolan. the creativity the ingenuity You know, we used to say all the time in in the American infantry, adapt, improvise and overcome. But that's also trained into you. So you can see also the decentralized leadership that's been a part of the Ukrainian training in contrast to the Russian leadership, which is so regimented and so uh, hierarchical. Right. We're seeing the the creativity of Ukraine um, really be a, a tremendous difference maker on everything from weather to equipment breakdowns. And that seems to be the ethos of the military that I think most outsiders didn't appreciate the differences around right the 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 ability to, to continue to iterate and improvise and just the sheer guts of what we're seeing from the Ukrainians across the board military and civilian I think has been stunning and 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 inspiring but I want to ask you Nolan if you can also pull back on another piece that you may have a unique insight we've talked about foreign fighters on this show we've we've talked to uh, Americans who've trained people uh, we've talked to folks who who are going over or are there now. Um, can you talk about this, this piece? Um, and let me ask you, what do you know about foreign fighters that are now in in Ukraine? And is it is it an overhyped story? Are we making it a bigger story than it is because we're Americans and we're so self-absorbed that we want to hear about ourselves? Um, can, can you can you pull that apart for us from your unique perspective as an American veteran yourself who's been there for, for eight years? What what's your take on on that story, Nolan?
2: Yeah, so you brought up a really great point, which is, you know, our, so to back up from the foreign fighter part of it real quick, but as far as the intelligence we're providing the Ukrainians and the weapons, all those things are essential to their war effort. However, I think we need to be careful when, you know, sometimes you hear, you know, Pentagon officials saying, you know, what we're seeing now in Ukraine is the product of our eight years of training or whatever. That's not true. You know, like Mm. I've witnessed the training in Western Ukraine. at have several times over the years. And I got to say it was the Ukrainians when it comes to combat skills. We're teaching the Americans more than vice versa, because how many American soldiers have any, I mean, combat experience against tanks and trench warfare, heavy artillery, air attacks. You know, I don't you know, maybe there's some people who've served in Desert Storm who can remember that stuff. But the Americans with that experience are in their 80s and
0: are in their 80s and 90s right now. Yeah, with a couple of yeah, exceptions, and- maybe from Fallujah, but but beyond that, very limited. And I think that's an important part of kind of revealing the American arrogance. We're in no position to be teaching most of these guys
2: about any of this, right? Exactly. And they've been on the weak side of the fight for a long time. And they've had, you know, less capable equipment, older equipment, and they've had to, to keep harping on this, but to be incredibly creative and flexible to use what they've got and to improvise solutions over the past eight years to not just survive against the Russians, but to hold their own for the last eight years. And that stalemated war in the Donbas and now in the full-scale war, they've actually been, they've pushed the Russians back from Kyiv, Kharkiv now, and they've largely uh, kept the Russian offensive in the South and the East at Bay for the last month or so since the Battle of Kyiv was won. So, you know, I, you know, we like for example, we give Ukraine all these new weapons, like we served in the US military. I don't know if you could hand a soldier or a pilot some new some new gear in the United States and have them be able to use it in combat two days later. We'd need, you know, all sorts of new operating procedures and lessons. it would be a lot of safety briefings. A, yeah, lot, like, a yeah. lot of safety briefings, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I think that, you know, yes, all the javelins and N-laws and all that stuff was incredibly important. But I think we should also not overlook the fact that Ukrainians were actually able to use these things incredibly quickly on the battlefield. And, you know, that speaks a lot, I think, to their adaptability and their flexibility. So I think, you know, we again, the things that the United States and NATO have done, particularly the equipment and the intelligence support has been essential. However, you know, none of that would have meant a damn thing if the Ukrainians hadn't had the the uh, sort of the characteristics Uh, to be able to implement those tools in a way that was effective on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as the foreign fighters, you know, the foreign fighters have not made a difference on the battlefield as far as allowing Ukraine to, you know, change the tide of battle or win the Battle of Kyiv. You know, in the individual units where these foreign fighters serve, they've certainly been incredibly effective. I think their level of training, especially the guys who come from special operations backgrounds, has been super useful. Um, But I think, you know, more globally, I think that the sort of the the message that sends to the Ukrainian people and Ukrainian soldiers that foreigners, Americans, Brits, Canadians, people from around the world are willing to come and fight in their war. It means a lot. Mm. Because there is certainly a sense in Ukraine today, as there has been for a long time, that they're sort of holding back the Russian threat from the rest of Europe and to feel like there are other soldiers from other countries who are willing to come join in that fight. It means a lot to them, and it improves their morale for sure. Mm. But I wouldn't say that the presence of the foreign fighters has been a, like, you know, a decisive factor in the war. And but, you know, that said, within the units where they serve, they've certainly, you know, help their, their comrades and, you know, taught them things from their training which which have been helpful. Uh, but I think overall it's been more of a morale booster for the Ukrainians than, you know, a combat edge, so to speak. Yeah,
0: that's, that's really helpful perspective. Nolan, can, can I ask you to drill down the story of the moment? Um, maybe Mariupol, right and and the azov and now you know trapped wounded folks the last stand the, the you know the Alamo of of this phase at least of of the war in Ukraine what can you tell us uh, from your sources your reporting or just your perspective um what what what's happening there that folks may not see elsewhere and need to know about
2: well I think we all know that it's it's hell on earth there you know I've I've had the chance to I've I'm texting one of the the Azov soldiers who was there and just, you know, he describes an incredibly sort of apocalyptic environment. You know, I think that Mariupol has become the grozny of this war, a city that's just been annihilated. Uh, Russia could not take it in any other way other than just wiping it off the map. Um, but I think to, to sort of try and glean the significance of the Mariupol battle. And I think that, you know, one thing we should understand is that the Azovstal factory represents about a fifth of Mariupol's land area, and the fact that the Russians now, more than two months in the war, still haven't taken it, and you got a you know a diehard group of maybe a thousand, you know that's a, very much an estimate so Ukrainian soldiers still holding out there under relentless bombing and just you know, hell, you know horrible conditions, cut off from supply lines, all these things. Um. The fact that they're still able to hold out and tie up Russian forces in Mariupol uh, I think it speaks both to you know just I don't want to say the incompetence but the you know the inability of Russia to achieve its aims on the ground and it's a case study in just the just the mind-boggling fighting spirit of the Ukrainians that they're willing to fight to the death and so I think that you know here in Kyiv you see banners of the word Mariupol everywhere. And you see, it's become this symbol of resistance. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, as the war goes on, uh, the longer the war goes on, the more Russia is incriminating itself in the eyes of the Ukrainian people. And the more these stories of heroism galvanize the Ukrainian nation to continue their resistance. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think that, uh, you know, it, I could say now, more than two months in the war, The level of war fatigue in Ukraine is very low, and I communicate very often with my friends in the front lines, and they're still enthusiastic. You know, it's tough; they are going through hell. Uh, A lot of them have been wounded and returned to the front lines, Um, but they absolutely 100% believe in victory. Mm. There's never, even from day one, there's never any doubt they're going to lose this thing. You know, and that that was incredible. That was. by far for me, the most striking thing is that first day when the cruise missiles started raining down on Kyiv and across the country. And you heard, you know, you knew the Russians were invading from Belarus and heading toward Kyiv. And I was like, man, this is scary. Like, what are they going to, like, if a Russian soldier comes and knocks on my door, what am I going to do? And it's, seriously thinking about this. Yep. But among my Ukrainian friends, they never took that, like, you know, it was a scary moment, but most of them were still very confident in the fact that they were going to win this war. And so I think you see that sort of you're know, not to be too much of a, you know, too, <laughs> too much of a cheerleader for Ukraine here, but I think it's it's a really remarkable moment we're seeing where this, this country really believed in victory from day one. And I think that, you know, stories like, you know, uh, the the holdouts, Ukrainian defenders in Mariupol not giving up, not surrendering, I think that that certainly represents the, the spirit and the mood in Ukraine. and it also kind of symbiotically reinforces uh, that spirit of resistance mm. across the.
0: I think that 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 is so important and so underestimated. Just the will to fight and and the magnitude of the the moral stance and the righteousness, um and just the 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 stories of heroism that continue to reverberate. Um, You know, whether it's Snake Island or now Mariupol or the ghost of Kyiv, I mean, you know, the legends are growing, but you don't even have to make up legends because the actual heroism is so widespread and so consistent and and so obvious. Right. I mean, this is we we all, in my view, should be cheerleaders for Ukraine right now because it's good versus evil. This is the clearest fight we've ever had, at least in, in my lifetime. Um, and and I think it's a time for folks to, to recognize that and, and not be apologetic about it. I, w- I want to ask you if I can, number one, I hope you can stick around for a little bit extra for our All Patreon right, members. Um, we're going to ask you a couple of questions. I want to ask you about that guitar behind you and some <laughs> other uh, stuff that you do to keep yourself sane. That'll be for our Patreon members only. So uh, if you're not one of them, please join us and you'll get that extra content with Nolan. But Nolan, you've been telling personal stories in a way that is obviously reflective of your connections there. And you told the story of 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 a hero, um, Alexander Makov. Can you tell folks who haven't read your piece um, who he was and why you you thought his story was so important to tell?
2: Yeah, I think Alexander is uh, emblematic of everything I've witnessed here in Ukraine uh, the last eight years, his his life story. So he was a a journalist living in Luhansk, uh, Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, where he's from, and uh, he grew up there, Russian speaker. Um, And he was there when Russian forces invaded his hometown in 2014. And let's make no mistake, it was Russian forces who invaded. There's no, you know, the idea that these were local separatists who rose up. That's all bullshit. They were organized, funded, armed, all that by Russia. So he was there, saw his homeland, his hometown, taken over by Russia. And uh, he had to leave. Uh, and he fled, left his hometown. He became a jur- war journalist at first, um, you know, before the war, he was covering, you know, cats and trees and stuff like that, mm-hmm. called it normal journalism. And then after the war began, he became a war correspondent. And after about a year of that, he decided, you know, I can't just report on my country's war. I need to be in it. I need to be a part of it. So he became a soldier. He had never fired a weapon before he went to basic training and uh, fired just 200 practice rounds during basic training. Then he was off to the front lines, Eastern Ukraine uh, did his tour and the front lines in the Donbass, returned vowed to not go back to the front lines for another year, but resumed his work as a journalist and then ended up uh, becoming a war correspondent. And he actually told me that you know, he would have these like moments of, of like remembrance because his camera weighed the exact same amount as his clash in the call. Mm. So he you know, spoke very, you know, just very movingly about the fact that it was very hard for him as a veteran to move on with his life because his war was still there. It was still going on. And that's something I think that many American veterans would likely uh, understand as well, because, you know, for many of us, we left our battlefields while our brothers and sisters were still on the front lines before our wars were over. And we had to somehow find a way to move on with our civilian lives uh, knowing that our war wasn't over yet, and so I think you know his that part of his story certainly resonated with me as a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. And he tried very hard, uh, but always in the back of his mind, he had Alexander had this notion that maybe one day he'd have to go back to war. And simultaneously, he was never able to return to his homeland. There's actually he told me a story about a tree in Luhansk that he had carved his name into as a little boy, and it was his dream in life to return there one day and to see that engraved name again. Mm. Um, anyway, he, so in the, you know, I knew him professionally and I'd always just incredible admire of his work and everything about him. Uh, but in the weeks leading up to the full-scale invasion, Alexander packed what he called a veteran's suitcase with all his gear ready to go within 24 hours, should Russia invade. And he was among the first group of, of reservists who who were set to be called up if there was a full scale invasion, however, as a journalist, he was not obligated to serve. So he could have, you know, declined and just kept on being a journalist, but he was committed to going back to war. Um, and so, you know, on February 24th, when the full scale Russian invasion began, he grabbed his veteran suitcase, went to the nearest uh, recruiting center and signed back up. And that night, February 24th, he said goodbye to his girlfriend Anastasia, and uh, he went to the Return to the War, proposed to Anastasia from the front lines in a video where he offered a pull pin from a grenade <laughs> as their wedding ring. Hold on, that was that. It was the
0: pull pin from a grenade was their wedding. Yeah, card. he said, I, "I'll give you a proper wedding
2: wedding ring when I get back from war." And uh, you know they they were a beautiful couple. <laughs> And anyway, he uh he was killed in in combat uh near Izuum, uh was killed by artillery. And uh, you know, just it's just a you know, some somebody knew him, very painful, but I think more than anything just to see the pain and in, in his fiance's uh face and her demeanor. I went to his funeral the other day and it just laid bare the you know the human toll of this war, uh, but also just you know just how this conflict with russia how russia's invasions of this country have disrupted and destroyed so many lives and this young man had so much going for him and he tried so hard to leave this war behind but he couldn't do it and when his country needed him he put it all on the line again went back out there and unfortunately uh, had to give his life but you know i just thought his story was very emblematic uh, i've you know, like I said, I've known many other veterans of the Donbass conflict who have <laughs> similarly similarly, had to rejoin um, active duty service and go out to the front lines. And some of them, like I mentioned earlier, you know, had had demons from what they'd previously seen. Mm. And so they had to return to their front. And I think that, you know, as fellow veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. veterans, you know, I think it would we can sort of imagine what it'd be like if suddenly we had to go back to those battlefields again yep. on a moment's notice and even more, you know, even more compelling for the Ukrainians is that their homeland has been invaded. You know, they're mm-hmm. defending their, like, their hometowns mm-hmm. their, families, yeah. their streets, their apartments, their stuff, their friends. So, um, anyway, his, he had a very powerful story and, um, you know, I was very moved to be at his funeral, but, um, you know, I just as the war drags on, you know, I do know more and more friends who are wounded or or worse out in the front lines. And so, it's thank just, you
0: for sharing that. I think I think yeah. your perspective and your ability to really share the the details of Alexander as a human, right, as a person as a fiance, as a friend, we're we're so critical, and we'll link to your reporting in the show notes. There are photos there from the services, and I think this is Nolan, the kind of reporting that you're in a very unique position to do, to tell his story. Um, and and to tell the stories that that represent so much about what's happening, um, and just the human side of this, because it, it's easy to think of this as a video game or or numbers on a on a TV screen. But there are so many human stories behind this that can only be told by someone who has that understanding and nuance that you do. Let me ask you um, maybe a, a final question here, Nolan. Mm-hmm. What's next? We we want to talk about what's next. What's what? How these pieces connect? Um, when you look across the summer in in ukraine or you look across the next few weeks what what if someone's watching the news or reading the paper they're trying to keep up on this um what would you encourage them to look for we're going to obviously encourage everyone to follow your reporting but what's the story to come the story to watch for that you think will be really really essential in the next couple of weeks
2: well i think you know based on everything that i follow and my my you know the people i'm in touch with on the front lines It seems as if Russia's second phase offensive, so-called second phase offensive, after they were defeated in the Battle of Kyiv, is running out of steam rapidly. And so Russia will not be able to, it looks like at this point, achieve a decisive uh, outcome, which they can claim as victory, before they are effectively a spent force in the South and the East. Where does that leave the war? Um, You know. Unfortunately, I think at, you know, when we look at sort of the the rhetoric and the, the actions and the statements of Russian p- President Vladimir Putin, it doesn't look like he's willing to back down anytime soon. So I think, you know, probably the most likely outcome is this thing just grinds on for a while, um, I think you know, Russia is about to be a spent force in the South and the East, and that offensive is going to slow down. Um, and But on the other hand, the Ukrainians have shown the ability to go on the attack too. Around mm-hmm. Kiev, they did it. They've pushed the Russians back from harder Kiev. And so as the Russians, like I said, sort of lose their steam, the Ukrainians are going to start to push back. The big question mark is when faced with you know, an embarrassing defeat, what does Putin do next? Does right. he do something crazy to try and regain the advantage? Does he try and find some bullshit propaganda victory he can claim and back off? Um, is there something, you know, we don't know what that will, what what that will entail. So for now, it looks like the war is probably going to drag on for a while. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, at the beginning of the c- conflict, there was a lot of talk about, you know, is Ukraine going to take some peace deal or look for a ceasefire? Well, I think many the the appetite of many Ukrainians for any sort of negotiated end with Russia has rapidly eroded due to the atrocities. Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the outskirts of Kiev after the Russians left, and you know, it's there's some pretty brutal stuff out there. Uh, a lot of dead civilians, a lot of dead Russians. And um, so I think that the Ukrainians don't want to condemn their countrymen to Russian occupation, right. and there's a huge appetite in Ukraine to start pushing back and to regain some of this lost ground. Um, so that, at this point, barring some major anomaly or some unexpected event, it looks like we're we're set to see sort of just a grinding artillery back and forth in the south and east for a while.
0: And I think that the, those of us who've been in conflicts know that that I, I don't think the public is a is ready for the brutality of what that could look like the brutality of extended protracted artillery battles and just the imprecision and carnage that that will result in um, is is i think part of what people need to emotionally and intellectually ready themselves for because you're going to want to turn away um, and you can't because now it's that much more important and your reporting is that much more important You've been really powerfully telling these stories, Nolan. I'm grateful for it. I'm going to give a shout out again to the the St. Javelin folks. I've got another shirt on this week. Every week (laughs) I've got one. So I've got one with the Ukrainian farmers pulling a tank. Um, I've been talking about them every week. Everybody check out St. Javelin uh, for for the shirts. But let me ask you one last question, Nolan. I promised uh, that that last one was going to be last. I got one more. What's your favorite thing about Ukraine, man? You live there, you're married to a family there. What's your favorite thing about Ukraine or something you really love about Ukraine you feel like most Americans might not know or appreciate?
2: It might seem like a cop-out answer, but the people. Yeah, Man, it's like, you know, I I always, when I, before the full-scale war, I was always trying to encourage people. And I know actually I encourage people now, come visit Kyiv, come visit Ukraine. Um, And I'd always say that, you know, if you wanna go see where history happened, go to Paris, London, You know, wherever, you want to see where history is happening, you got to come to Ukraine. And just the unbelievable energy of the young people in this country, the millennial generation, which gets, you know, they get a lot of, they get a bad rap in the United States sometimes. Um, But this generation, which, you know, in 2014 during the Revolution of Dignity, they walked into sniper fire for the sake of democracy and freedom. And they've waged, you know, they've been, defending their country in the Donbas trenches for eight years for the sake of freedom and democracy. And now, you know, they've stared down a full scale Russian invasion for all these things that we really cherish. And so, you know, I, I come here and I kind of see, you know, the American dream in action. Yeah. And it's pretty, it's pretty damn inspiring, you know, and like, and these aren't, you know, these are just baristas and university students and, and, you know, just normal people who grabbed guns and went down there and stared down Russian tanks in 2014. And they've, fought for 8 years. And so their their courage, uh their their unbending faith in this dream and the fact that they've never given up after all these years. Yeah, it's it's really inspiring for me and I I you know, I it's probably what kept me here and you know, you know, not even just the young people too, but my my mother-in-law and my father-in-law grew up in the Soviet Union. My father-in-law is a Soviet army veteran you know, and he's the most patriotic pro American person to ever meet in the world right now. And anyway, I just to see our best attributes. That's you know, it, man.
0: Our I love best it. That, that's going to be the American dream in action is it's yeah. not the American dream anymore. It's, it's kind of a global dream and it's maybe it is. even, even more embodied. Like the American dream 2.0 is the Ukrainian dream. And you're telling that story and sharing that story. Um, we're really, really thankful that you spent this time with us and uh, grateful for your heroic reporting, Um, for representing both cultures in in such an important way. And I'm glad we could spend so much time together, man. I I really am grateful. I hope you'll come back. I'm going to stick around for our Patreon members. Um, But thank you for being out there, man. Thank you for telling the story. Thank you for your your heroism. Um, And until next time, Slava Ukrainians, stay vigilant.
2: Slava, Thanks for having me on.
0: Nolan Peterson is very brave. He's standing by Ukraine, and please stand by him. Follow him on Twitter, check out his books, read all his reporting at Coffee or Die, and I'll link to all this in the show notes and on the Independent Americans website. Nolan Peterson represents the best of what Ukraine is all about, the best of what America is all about, and the best of what being a helper is all about, a true helper.
1: Always look for the helpers.
2: There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope.
0: The helpers are out there. I'm going to bring them to you in every episode. And you can also check the hashtag look for the helpers on Twitter and share yours. Be sure to follow us everywhere on social, play guest to guest every Wednesday night and check out independentamericans.us. You can see the full video of my conversation with Nolan there. You can hear or watch all our recent episodes on Ukraine and all the episodes from the beginning. You can also get Independent Americans gear and support this show. You can stand by us and you can also stand by us by joining our Patreon community. Thank you to those folks who continue to support this work, especially the newest members. Welcome to Liz Busk and Alex Davidson. Thanks for stepping up and joining the Patreon crew. Liz and Alex, welcome aboard. You're helping Righteous Media continue to bring you the five eyes in this and all our podcasts and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. Special thanks to the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, precise Paula Hernandez, and as always, my wife and two boys. We've still got this damn flu but we've also got spring and we have got soccer. We have got T-ball and we have got dirt track. Speed racing is back and we've got this community. So thank you to all of you. America's more divided than ever before, but at independent Americans and righteous media, we're working to change it, adding light to contrast the heat. And if you're among those 42% of Americans who are independent, this is your show. Keep spreading the word. All are welcome. And we invite you to join us and be a part of the solution and part of the future. Be sure to check out all the other Righteous Media podcasts, especially the Firefighters with Rob Sarah and B-Dorm with Jericho Turner and Don Ellivert. You can subscribe to all of them for free wherever you get this pod or at righteous.us and help us keep sharing that hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy. This is a time to stand with Ukraine and a time for hope that change can happen. And often that change will come from the next generation. That's true with this generation of Ukrainians who are stepping up to lead the fight. And hopefully, it will be true inside Russia, too. Bono from U2 put a point on it when he was interviewed this week after his visit to Ukraine.
1: She was telling us a story and and just being bear witnessing, um, bearing witness. So I suppose that's what we're here to do. Essentially, we were invited to come by... President Zelensky. What do you think of the people who did this just finally? Oh, that's... That's hard. That's hard. Um, I think it's, it's one man's war, really. And I think there's people in Russia... will Will younger people know what's going on. And I trust in the younger people in Russia to throw this man... Um, out of his office that was so high and is so low right now. That's me trying to be understated.
0: That's Bono putting it down in song and in spoken word as he always does. We all must bear witness and share what we witness, especially with the young people in Russia who can drive Putin out end this madman's war and help us build toward peace and a better future. And we can all keep spreading the word and stand with Ukraine all the way to victory. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant and we're all in this together. All across America, all across Ukraine, all across Russia and around the world, we are in this together. From the brave Ukrainian troops hanging on inside Mariupol right now, to Nolan Peterson and his family, to Bono and the crew from U2, to the young people of Russia hearing the calls for change, to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykov. Thank you for listening. And thank you for standing with us. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraini, And stay vigilant, America.
1: Righteous Media.